Good morning. Uh, before we begin, as a reflection of University of Sydney's recognition of the deep history and culture of the land on which it was built, I would first like to acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand. They stand on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I also extend this acknowledgement to any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people online with us today, as well as the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. My name is Gorana Grgic. I'm a senior lecturer at the U US Studies Center and uh, at the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. And uh, today, uh, as it's been now customary, we are presenting another installment uh, in a series of talks uh, with NATO experts that uh, is an initiative between the United States Studies Center and NATO Public Diplomacy Division. In this series, we explore the challenges ahead of NATO and Australia and propose areas where furthering and deepening cooperation can offer solutions. This particular installment comes at a time which is uh, quite different from all of the previous webinars we have done for February 24th of this year has drastically and uh, irrevocably changed the security architecture and uh, circumstances in Europe. So we'll get to the topic in a second, but uh, just a few housekeeping notes before we get underway. We do encourage you as always to become part of this discussion and ask questions as we go along. This can be done uh, at any time by typing them in into the Q&A box and we will make sure that we address those towards the end of our session today. Apart from being streamed live on YouTube, this discussion is also being recorded for later access on US Study Center's media channels. But now back to the topic. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and brazen aggression represent the worst military aggression in Europe for decades. It is also the most blatant breach of international law and state sovereignty on the European continent in a generation which in turn has highlighted the importance of NATO's core task of collective defense and deterrence. The aftermath of the February 24 invasion will have irrevocable consequences for transatlantic security and priorities. Yet even before this, there were multiple growing challenges to the existing security architecture and institutions that were set up in the wake of the Second World War. What challenges and threats is NATO facing given the current security crisis on the Eastern border? How will this impact the upcoming release of the new strategic concept? And how can these issues be addressed both at the level of the Alliance, as well as in cooperation with partner countries such as Australia. To discuss all of this, I am very glad to introduce Mr. Nicola DeSantis, who is currently the head of the engagement section in the Public Diplomacy Division of NATO, a post he has uh, been appointed to back in 2019. Mr. DeSantis is responsible for leading and managing the Alliance's public diplomacy activities and programs and promoting a better understanding of NATO, its 
values, policies, activities, fostering dialogue and cooperation with relevant uh, audiences in NATO and partner countries. Uh, a true veteran of NATO, uh, Mr. DeSantis has been with the organization for over 30 years. And prior to uh, being in this very position, he was also the head of the Middle East and Northern Africa sec section in the political affairs and security policy division. So uh, good morning, Mr. DeSantis. We are both in Europe actually, but uh, it is very much evening over uh, in Sydney. Uh, again, uh, welcome to the US Study Center, even in in this virtual form. And as we agreed, the floor is all yours for some opening remarks before we uh, get started with the discussion. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Grich. I would like to thank you personally for all and the United States Studies Centers uh, at the University of Sydney because of the uh, work that you're doing in order to promote a better understanding of NATO's policies and goals. This is very much uh, important and, and view, especially considering that Australia is uh, since 2005 a very active partner uh, of NATO. Australia has developed, uh, you know, I would say, um, a relationship with NATO based on two pillars, uh, mutually reinforcing political dialogue and practical cooperation. And Australia has not only been a security user as a partner of NATO, but a contributor, an effective contributor also to NATO operations, uh, be it uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's one of our partners uh, that we call partners across the globe because NATO has a number of partnerships going uh, from the East to the Middle East and to the Pacific. And that's why I'm particularly pleased uh, to have this opportunity uh, to talk to you. Now, the, the, the scene that you have uh, said clearly highlight, and you asked me, did this session was supposed to be um, uh, you know, focusing on the uh, rule-based international order and the major challenge that we have today to the rule-based international order is the one that you identified in your introduction, which is the military aggression of Russia towards Ukraine. And uh, this is the darkest uh, period, I would say, in uh, European's history uh, since the Second World War. And uh, this is something which is unprovoked, that is, is unjustified, and including the fact that in addition to violating the authority of democratic states, it is now uh, targeting deliberately civilians, which is something which is unacceptable and is this against the international, uh, the rule-based international order. Now, in saying this, I would like to lay down some facts because there's a lot of misperceptions, misunderstanding. There's also disinformation uh, with regard to the NATO-Russia relationship. And I want to start by saying you referred to a, a strategic concept, which is something that you also would like to discuss uh, today. And I want to start with the first strategic concept that NATO made public since the end of the Cold War in November 1991 at the Rome summit, where NATO called all of the successor states from the former Soviet Union and Russia itself to build a new security order, one which would replace uh, the confrontation that we had during the Cold War moving. NATO's outreach to the emerging democracies of Central and Eastern Europe, to the successive states of the former Soviet Union, and to Russia itself to build a new security order, which would move our cooperation from, in fact, confrontation to cooperation in the security sphere. The possibility to make concrete the long-term vision that NATO had even during the Cold War, which is to uh, build a Europe which would be free, which would be united, and which would be 
at peace. Now, in doing so, we did lend the hand of friendship since the beginning to Russia. Russia was included in November 1991 at the Rome summit in the North Atlantic Operation Council, which started to launch this idea of partnership with countries which were not members of the alliance. And Russia was highly regarded into this partnership. I would like to stress, you mentioned that I was a NATO for some time. The first secretary general recruited me, Manfred Werner, to work under his uh, uh, private office, was the first secretary general to go to Moscow, to visit Moscow. So secretary general Nero Imagine in those years traveling to Moscow. And that signaled that the importance that the allies attached to building a cooperative relationship with Russia. Our security concept since 1991 was an inclusive security concept. It was aimed at marginalizing nobody in Europe, but rather call everybody to build a new security order of peace. In uh, 19, and in the, the North Atlantic Operation Council, where for the first time you had Russian officials coming to NATO, sitting down with NATO and discussing with the other countries uh, from Central and Eastern Europe and the successor states of the former Soviet Union, security issues of common concern, we also attached practical cooperation, a work program. So in other words, we gave concrete dimension, the same two pillars, I would say, that are part of the cooperation with Australia, political dialogue and practical cooperation were extended to Russia. 1994, we invited Russia to the Partnership for Peace program in order to do three things, promote the democratic control of the armed forces, the transparency of defense budget and interoperability of armed forces. The fact that forces could train together so that if peace had, were challenged in Europe, we would respond together. And in fact, two years later, NATO under UN mandate deployed forces in the former Yugoslavia and uh, to implement the Dayton Accord. And not many people know that we even included a deputy supreme commander into the NATO strategic command in Mons nearby. There was a Russian because the Russian military forces on the ground worked together with NATO to enforce the Dayton Accord under mandate of the United Nations. The same thing we did, including Russia, later in the operation in Kosovo, again on the ground, shoulder to shoulder with NATO forces on UN mandate. And in 1997, in order to give more concrete shape, a shape to our cooperation with Russia, we found the founding act of mutual relations and cooperation between NATO and the Russian Federation. The founding act, and we also create, established a body, a permanent joint council between NATO and Russia a bilateral council, which would meet regularly to discuss issues and common concerns and to look at practical areas of cooperation, those identified in the founding act. And in the founding act, we committed, NATO committed to a number of principles and Russia committed to a number of principles. NATO committed not to deploy nuclear weapons on the territory of new members. Second, not to deploy, uh, you know, under those security circumstances, combat troops on the allied or NATO territory, but rather that the defense of new members will come by reinforcement. Those reinforcements that we're sending now to the region, to our partners, because their security is challenged by the military aggression to Ukraine and the, the possibility that this conflict could uh, spill over. So in other words, NATO, committed to its principles, but, but Russia violated the principles of the founding act. The, Russia committed to respect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of the states, and it had also committed to allow these countries 
to choose the way in which they would have promoted their security. And if their security is to be part of international organizations, be it NATO, being the European Union, complementing the security and economic uh, dimension, this is the free choice of, uh, of any democratic countries. And nobody can reestablish divided lines in Europe. In 2002, we uh, transformed the Permanent Joint Council from a bilateral body into the NATO Russia Council and Rome, another meeting with the Russian Federation, where President Putin committed to the principles of founding act, those principles that he has violated to the, uh, through the military aggression uh, to Ukraine. He also mentioned uh, in the beginning that we are revising the strategic concept. Of course, the strategic concept, our leaders will have to factor in also these new developments, this new security challenge to the, to the rule-based international order uh, represented by the military aggression of Russia towards Ukraine. But this is a process of reflection which started one year ago under the, let's say, uh, generally known as NATO 2030. In other words, the, the, uh, the strategic concept has been updated regularly throughout the years, uh, every nine, 10 years. And in 2010, in, that, uh, in the new strategic concept, we identified the number of security challenges and threats. But we also recognized one year ago, as you also indicated in your introduction, the NATO today faces uh, you know, multifaceted, the multi-direction security challenges and threats, which were not there in 2010. And that is why the Secretary General launched a reflection process you know, bringing together international experts, civil society, in addition to consulting, of course, uh, governments of the allies. And they decided that, of course, a new strategic concept uh, had to be drafted. The strategic concept had to be updated, I would say. And it had to, do, to be updated to three fundamental lines, you know, strengthen the political dimension of NATO, because NATO remains a political and military organization. Then second, uh, strengthen the military dimension so that deterrence and defense would also be updated to the current security scenarios. And we see today how necessary that effort is, but also reaching out to global partners, making NATO more global in uh, outlook. This doesn't mean that NATO will become the global policeman, but rather than because security challenges and threats are global in character, we need to broaden also the partnership. And that's why our effort on the Pacific you know, working with global partners like Australia is so important. I think I would like to stop here and give also now, uh, give more room to the discussion uh, that, uh, you know, we should have uh, this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for those introductory remarks. That was excellent. And I, I think it touched uh, on a lot of points that I have jotted down and also uh, on, on some of the points that we've already uh, received via pre-submitted questions from uh, the audience here today. So um, let's go back then to the strategic concept and, and this uh, exer exercise in uh, a sort of self-reflection, but also in uh, where it is that NATO will be going. So NATO's last strategic concept was adopted at the Lisbon summit well over a decade ago. Uh, back then, uh, the, the sort of assessment of the security situation was such that uh, it was said that there is no major conventional threat in Europe uh, at that point, right? 
right? Uh, uh, something that, again, uh, is uh, markedly different, uh, uh, 180 degrees basically change uh, back, back from then. Um, so um, th this question of NATO's core tasks, and maybe, you know, if, if not everyone is uh, sort of familiar with the three core tasks that NATO has and, and the sort of missions that it picked up along the way, along with the collective defense, which was there since the founding, but then also the issues and, and mission, mission that was related to crisis management and to cooperative security. Uh, so you already alluded to some of this that uh, basically NATO's uh, whole being and, and the kind of history is one of adaptation, of change, changing uh, as, as circumstances changed. And uh, certainly with the wars in the Balkans or with the intervention in Afghanistan, uh, with the emergence of, of different uh, challenges uh, around the globe, uh, we have seen basically uh, evolution of uh, NATO's mission into uh, the cooperative security and crisis management. So a question then, um, will now, given uh, the war in Ukraine, defense and deterrence become again just the focus of NATO? How much bandwidth will there be for NATO to actually deal with these other things? You have said NATO is clearly not a global alliance, but it has been addressing global challenges. Um, a lot of people are saying this is actually time for NATO to focus on uh, the core of its geographical uh, uh, focus. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me, let me say, of course, it's going to be difficult uh, to anticipate uh, the decision that our heads of state and government will take on 29th and 30th of June with regard to the content of the strategic concept, consultations undergoing, ultimately NATO being an intergovernmental organization. It will be our governments which will reach consensus and will decide. But let me say, you alluded to three core security tasks. These are uh, collective uh, defense, uh, crisis management, and cooperative security. What does it mean? Well, NATO remains a defensive alliance. Our priority is to protect our member countries so that they can perfect their democracies. This is the fundamental character of NATO. Uh, second, the NATO over the years, starting in Bosnia and the Balkans, <clears throat> but then in Afghanistan, but also in Libya, um, NATO has been using diplomatic and military tools to manage successfully crisis. And that's what we've done. Um, and of course, in the future, NATO will need to continue. And then, sorry, the third one is uh, cover the security, the possibility of working with partners. Now, looking at the three of them, personally, I think uh, there is still value in, in all these three core security tasks. And, you know, but what did uh, you said NATO has, uh, you know, worked uh, for change? I would say NATO has been an agent of change. In other words, and this is what you expect from an international security organization to update itself. The ability to deal with the different security challenges as the security environment, the international security environment, you know, evolves. Now, um, collective defense, looking at, at the three of them, collective defense, you know, the ability to defense NATO's territory, uh, it's not only true because of Russia, of course, but, you know, since 2000. Then and now, we have seen, in addition to, uh, I would say, system systemic competitions from assertive and authoritarian states, we have also seen, of course, uh, that uh, 
a, a number of security challenges have evolved. The proliferation of uh, small arms and light weapons, in addition of those of weapons of mass destruction. International terrorism, you know, which continues to challenge uh, uh, our countries. Then uh, we have seen, uh, for example, the spillover from failing and failed states. These also uh, affect our security. The erosion of the arms control regime internationally. The fact also that some of uh, the weapons uh, which uh, uh, countries have, for example, you know, the nuclear weapons of China are not part of any arms control agreement. The race of China also as an international actor with global outreach, both in economic and military terms. These are things that, of course, the allies ha have to consider. And uh, alongside that, we have seen the pandemic striking all of our countries, including uh, Australia. So we have gone uh, uh, from pandemic to infodemic. You know, we have seen disinformation, challenges and attacking our values, you know. And, and today there's a cultural dimension also of this, uh, you know, between democratic states and those who want to undermine democracy, those who undermine the values, I would say the fundamental values which underpin the alliance, democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. So all of this, of course, has to be factored in in the new strategic concept. And that's why the Secretary General launches discussion on the NATO 2030 to look at all of these threats from, I would say, space to cyberspace, uh, to from, as I said before, from pandemic to infodemic, and see how all of this affect our security and how the Alliance can continue to do in a different way, the job it has always done, to protect our countries so that our societies can flourish. So you already uh, alluded to the history of NATO-Russia relations and uh, especially, obviously, uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the kind of trajectory of different sort of uh, levels of, of formal agreements and uh, modes of cooperation. Um, the question of uh, present day, uh, in uh, as we see, obviously, this aggression continue and uh, tomorrow is uh, going to be the, the one month anniversary uh, from Russia's invasion uh, in, into Ukraine. Um, what are the uh, lines of communication looking like at the moment? We've heard Secretary General Stoltenberg talking about uh, the confliction talks about uh, uh, some of uh, the, the lines there uh, remaining. Can you tell us a, a bit more uh, in terms of protecting uh, both NATO uh, territory, but also uh, in avoiding uh, further escalation between the alliance and it, Russia. Yeah, and that's very important. As the Secretary General has outlined, uh, you know, we need to avoid any possible escalation and spillover of uh, this conflict. Uh, while we hope, of course, for a diplomatic solution, because there cannot be a military solution, but only a diplomatic one to, other, to solve this, uh, this conflict. But also, I would say, you know, throughout, since, uh, you know, the uh, attack against Georgia, the illegal annexation of Crimea, to today, you know, the, with uh, the military aggression towards Ukraine, NATO has always tried to use the NATO-Russia Council to discuss these issues, to come to the table. And, uh, you know, Russia has refused, especially with, with this crisis. Nevertheless, we do believe the military channels of communication needs to be open because, of course, we need to prevent 
misperception, misunderstanding, because these are the causes of tensions and potentially they can also create conflicts. So these uh, possibility from NATO remains. And of course, our active communications, our public diplomacy, the communication of the Secretary General at the highest level of all NATO officials goes in the direction to explain, you know, NATO's role with this kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, military aggression and also uh, avoid uh, that, uh, you know, NATO's intentions are uh, misread and uh, misperceived. NATO uh, is no party to this conflict. We don't want to have it. And, uh, but at the same time, we have put in place, and this has to be clear, all the mechanisms necessary for a security alliance to defend its member countries. And nobody should doubt the result of the alliance in doing so. So uh, one of the more surprising uh, uh, sort of uh, responses to uh, the war in Ukraine has been the show of transatlantic unity, whether we are talking at the intra-alliance level, but also in uh, the way that NATO has cooperated with other like-minded entities. And uh, here primarily uh, European Union uh, stands out obviously as the uh, kind of obvious intergovernmental organization for cooperation uh, when it comes to security in Europe. Um, two questions here. The first one, um, the extent of uh, unity and consensus building uh, within NATO, uh, has that been something that has been surprising even for someone who has been a veteran of NATO? Uh, and then second, uh, what to make of this nascent NATO-EU partnership, uh, especially as uh, something momentous happened in European Union uh, and actually just this week, uh, two days ago, we had the adoption of the strategic compass, which is European Union's own uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, the the report that came out as uh, a result of this uh, reflection process, uh, the first one of its kind as to where it is that EU wants to go uh, as uh, a security actor, not just as an economic or normative power. Um, so uh, a bit of a long one, but uh, the intra-alliance and then uh, the EU-NATO uh, uh, cooperation. No, and thank you for raising uh, thank you for raising this point, which is a very important point. You know, it's a very important point which has characterized, I would say, all the discussions so far uh, towards the strategic concept, the public and the one internally to the alliance, which is how to ensure the complementarity between NATO and the European Union in the security and defense sphere. Let me say that this is not uh, anything; it's not something new, because. This is something that started already with the strategic concept of 1991, where also the United States recognized, and I quote, that the emerging of the European and security and defense identity reflected within the strengthening of the European pillar of NATO will reinforce transatlantic solidarity and cohesion. And that's what has been happening over the years. We tried to give shape to this. Remember when we launched the combined joint task forces concept through which NATO identified in its uh, strategic command the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, a European always who would be able to detach the, this uh, combined joint task forces so that we would have 
capabilities that could be put under the authority of the European Union in case in which NATO as such would decide not to act in a military contingency, but the European Union would. As you know, the European Union has a number of structures, the Political Security Committee, the Military Committee, it has an international military staff like NATO, but it does not have a strategic command. It doesn't have shape. But in order to ensure complementarity, we did a number of agreements for the release, monitoring, and recall of NATO's assets and capabilities, describing all the modalities in which we will make concrete this cooperation with NATO and the European Union. And today we're doing the same thing. So that display of unity, you asked me whether I was surprised. I'm not surprised of that display of unity because we've always tried since 1991 through three strategic concepts of foreign, I'm sure it's gonna be the same with, with the fourth that we will revise to ensure this complementarity in a concrete way between NATO and the European Union, which is political fundamentally, which, and also, of course, it has to be accompanied by, you know, concrete tools uh, to, to, make it, uh, to make it real. So what we saw with regard to Ukraine, having, uh, you know, the president of the commission coming to NATO headquarters, having the secretary attending meetings of NATO's heads of state and government, having the secretary general attending meetings of uh, the EU, and also the fact that throughout the years, the North Atlantic Cooperation Council often met with the uh, political and security committee of the European Union. This complementarity has been there. And that is, I would say, the basis for the unity, the transatlantic unity that you have seen today vis-a-vis -vis the crisis in which each one, each organization is playing its roles uh, within its own specificity. NATO and the security sphere for the defense of its members, the European Union with regard to the sanctions, which also uh, include the transatlantic dimension. That is why tomorrow, the President of the United States will be in Europe for an extraordinary meeting. And uh, after being at NATO headquarters, we'll also go to the European Union, another short display of this transatlantic unity and solidarity. So in a nutshell, we've traveled a long way from the uh, famous Albright's uh, no, the three Ds and, and no to three Ds to, to NATO uh, welcoming EU's aspiration for strategic autonomy. At least I'm going to, to take it uh, uh, somewhat like that. And you have mentioned, uh, obviously, the United States and uh, the role that it plays obviously still as the world's largest military power uh, as, as uh, certainly the, the member state that has had a hit critical role uh, in, uh, in the creation of the alliance, in the maintenance of the alliance. Um, what do we uh, uh, see in terms of maybe the Biden administration's uh, stance uh, towards NATO uh, in terms of continuities and changes from the previous administrations? How has this helped uh, the uh, cohesion within the alliance? And uh, also, do we, do we still see dissonance over certain matters? We've seen, for instance, now a major change in uh, the, the kind of uh, outlook in terms of the military uh, spending uh, on part of some of the most notable and, and uh, largest uh, member states in, in Europe. Um, what, what are, uh, again, some of those similarities? What are the, the changes when it comes to the U.S. stance uh, as someone who is at the U.S. Study Center? Look, uh, uh, with regard to the, <clears throat> to the three Ds of uh, Mrs. Albright at the time, 
I think they remain valid, you know? They, they shouldn't be, in my view, any uh, duplication of existing structures. That's why we're talking about complementarity. There shouldn't be any discrimination of any allies, you know, especially those who are not members of the EU, but are members of NATO. As you know, the membership of the two organizations does not, uh, uh, you know, coincide. And that's why we mean complementary. So I think that the three Ds remain uh, valid today. Now, with regard to US foreign policy, is a question that especially working at the United States Study Center, you should ask the United States is not uh, appropriate for a member of NATO's international staff. After all, I work in a structure which under the Secretary General leadership implements the decisions taken by our government by consensus, you should ask them. What I can say, you know, is that clearly, you know, the Biden administration has shown that it attaches high importance to the transatlantic uh, uh, alliance, to the transatlantic bond, which is the unique sources of security and stability on this continent since when the United States have been involved in the reconstruction of Europe after the Second World War. And they've also contributed to create this structure. You know, the, the treaty was signed the 4th of April 1949 in Washington. And the, the countries, uh, you know, deposited their accession documents to the government of the United States. So in other words, this remains the transatlantic uh, place where, you know, the United States and Europe um, not only uh, discuss, but also take a decision and eventually act on issues pertaining to their transatlantic security. And President Biden has made it very clear that this is the direction of this administration. And that's why I believe is coming to Europe at the major times of challenge for the transatlantic security. You've mentioned the membership of NATO uh, and uh, in, in uh, the sort of comparison with EU, obviously those uh, member states do not coincide. There is a huge overlap, but obviously notable differences. EU, 27 member states, NATO 30 extends over the Atlantic. Um, we hear increasing chatter about uh, potential for NATO's enlargement in the wake of Russia's aggression. Uh, primarily in the north. Finland, Sweden, member states of the European Union, uh, not member states of NATO, uh, are the ones that are uh, very much being identified in these uh, conversations. Uh, from your perspective, and the, to the extent that you can uh, speak to that, uh, the partnership with uh, those two countries, might it actually extend all the way to them becoming the 31st and 32nd member states of NATO? Or are we just going to see the uh, deepening of the enhanced opportunity partnership that they have with NATO? Well, what I would like to say that the Finland and Sweden are strong uh, partners of NATO. You know, we attach high importance to their cooperation. Again, it is based, uh, you know, on two pillars, political dialogue, the practical cooperation. At this time, we're exchanging uh, a lot of, uh, we're having a lot of political dialogue with these two countries. And of course, you know, they are part of our community, although they're not members of NATO, they are partners with which we attach our importance. Now, the door of NATO remains open. We've said it and we continue to repeat it. Article 10 of the Washington Treaty allows countries which signal their interest to be a part of NATO 
to be invited and to follow a process uh, of membership. After all, the alliance went from the 12 original signatory of the Washington Treaty to uh, uh, 14, 15, 16, up until through different, I would say, moments of the inclusion of new members uh, into the alliance to so the current 30 members. The door remains open, will be for our governments to decide who uh, will be uh, the next member of NATO uh, following the process uh, that, of course, uh, you know, is there for all member countries. For all, sorry, uh, countries who apply for membership. Excellent. Um, we are starting to get some questions into the in in the Q and A box, and I will address them uh, in just one second. Uh, I do just want to touch uh, on two remaining issues, given the topic uh, of our discussion for today was framed under uh, this broad umbrella of challenges. Uh, to the rules-based order or the liberal international order. And obviously within academia, there is a lot of debate on whether such a thing ever existed, but I'm not going to delve into that. That's a matter for academic conferences uh, and, and our sort of consensus and dissensus uh, as academics, uh, whether uh, we want to call this set of institutions of norms that emerged in the wake of uh, World War II and also uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, whether uh, they, they deserve this sort of uh, title. But it's certain that over the past decade or so, we have seen unraveling of a lot of uh, the institutions as well as the breaches of norms that were uh, almost taken for granted for a number of decades. Um, and there have been uh, basically two or three dominant trends. We've seen the kind of power diffusion uh, away from the sort of transatlantic space uh, into the East. Uh, we've seen so that sort of power diffusion uh, uh, among the states. We've seen the power diffusion away from the states as different actors emerge on the scene that aren't necessarily state-based actors, whether they are militant groups, right, or whether they are just uh, very significant players on the scene, for instance, uh, big corporations. And also what we've seen is a steady uh, decline in terms of uh, the levels of trust uh, in governments, uh, in uh, political offices of different types, as well as uh, this sort of idea of democratic backsliding, almost a democratic recession for the past decade and a half. So in terms of these challenges and challengers to the rules-based order, what should be the role that NATO plays? Um, and uh, what uh, are the, the sort of specific points uh, that NATO uh, should focus on? Uh, for instance, uh, as again, uh, the US Study Center finds itself in the Indo-Pacific, does NATO need a common China policy? Um, or is this sort of focus out of area distracting it from those core tasks that we touched on uh, early on in our discussion? Um, can NATO reconcile the maintenance of the rules-based order with the challenges and threats that are coming simultaneously from Russia and from China? Well, you know, you remind me of Senator Luger during the uh, Bosnian crisis that NATO should go out of area of out of business. I must say it always puzzled me in that statement 
which however, you know, had the meaning, uh, how we could consider, you know, something happening in the Balkans as out of area, because the Balkans are part of Europe, especially of that Europol and free that, you know, we try to build with the end of the Cold War. And in fact, with regard to the Balkans, as we see, there is inclusion, uh, you know, in, in the place which they deserve, which is in Europe and in the Transatlantic Alliance and in the European institutions. Now, therefore, you know, I would be careful with this idea of out of air. A security organization has to deal with all of the challenges which affect its security. And in order to be worth what the taxpayer, you know, invest in this organization and, and its capabilities. So our core task remains, our principal goal to ensure the defense and the security of our allies. And this can be done in different ways. Of course, maintaining the capabilities needed because NATO's credibility, both in deterrence and defense uh, is in its capabilities, in the ability, you know, that the potential adversary would be deterred. And in case the deterrence is not enough, uh, will be, uh, you know, <clears throat> defeated in order to restore the status quo. Now, <clears throat> the discussion that you uh, made, the reference to democracy, you know, and whether, you know, some scholars have uh, called into questions whether the international rule-based uh, order and the liberal uh, democracies order exist, uh, you know, well, again, I want to look at facts. We have democratic states, countries that with the Second World War have enjoyed the spread of democracy and are working to perfect the democracies. Even the inclusion of NATO, in NATO of new members, it's part of enlarging the space of democracy and protecting the democratic uh, countries so that they can perfect their democratic institutions. So, you know, this I think it's very important to say, but of course democracy is challenged. It's challenged by state and non-state actors. International terrorism shows how non-state actors, you know, are a challenge to our security. Uh, what's happening with Russia, Iran, for example, you know, and uh, the spillover from uh, conflict, which I referred, uh, you know, in my introduction, isn't it, uh, doesn't it show the fragility of states, you know, and so you have some states which uh, are so fragile that they cannot deal with the threats to their security that they face domestically and internationally, and that's why NATO, for example, terms of partnership has very much worked, uh, you know, in terms of capacity building. So in other words, helping countries become more resilient towards, uh, you know, the security challenges and threats that they face domestically and internationally, bringing our experience, extending the space of multilateralism in the security sphere, sharing knowledge, understanding democratic practices in the management of uh, the security and defense institutions. So this issue of democracy is very important. Partnership for Peace had the fundamental feature, the more, you know, the <clears throat> uh, promoting the civilian oversight of the military. The fact that, that in democratic states, military security services, uh, defense and military institutions are under civilian power. The transparency of defense budget, which of course allow the oppositions uh, of states, you know, to discuss uh, the way in which human and financial resources to promote the national security interests are allocated in democratic states, but also ensure transparency internationally. So other states, you know, can see, you know, how the, those countries. So this issue of, of democracy is, is very important and it's core to me. 
score to the values which bind us together is our DNA, I would say, but it's also part of what we try to communicate, to contribute with our experience to other countries. Now, China. Of course, you know, and given Australia, <laughs> location, you know, Sydney or the university, it's also something relevant. Well, we've said that, of course, our cooperation with global partners, and I said it at the beginning, uh, including Australia, Japan, New Zealand, South Korea, is part also of our reflection of our thinking, it's part of NATO 2030. Certainly, uh, it will be part, it will have a place in the strategic council. As in, I said, I cannot anticipate because it's not up to me, but I would imagine that because of the discussions, our leaders will also address that. And now China can be looked at different ways from the economic power. And again, you go back to democracy. If there is one country which has enjoyed, I would say more than many others in terms of development, our liberal democratic ideas of inclusion through economic inclusion, through economic inclusiveness is China, which has benefited much more than anybody else of this idea of liberal democracy or globalization, which underpins globalization in economic terms. And it went uh, from an economy which, had a, which was struggling to be now a major economic power international. China has the second military budget. Uh, China is building uh, ships, uh, you know, for large transport of troops, for example. They say it is because they have a lot of uh, migrants uh, internationally. Okay, might be an explanation. Um, also, uh, you know, it has uh, uh, weapons like uh, hypersonic gliders, uh, which are uh, which are a new a, a kind of technology which, of course, can direct, uh, you know, warheads that can be conventional, but also, you know, uh, nuclear. And it is under outside any arms control uh, agreement. So clearly. China's growing influence uh, and international policies uh, will have to be addressed by the alliance uh, and have to be discussed and they will have to be factored in. But right now, I cannot anticipate in which direction the alliance will go. We'll see this on 29th and 30th June, so stay tuned. For the Madrid summit, yes, moving, moving uh, uh, in the uh, Pyrenees uh, from Lisbon to Madrid. But um, I think uh, your your response here opened up uh, a really uh, great point for uh, discussion and one that has actually been posed in several questions that we've had uh, pre-submitted as well as uh, the ones coming in the Q&A box. And this is actually around NATO's uh, competencies and uh, you already talked about how NATO uh, is not just a military, but also a political alliance. Uh, it's right there in the preamble uh, to the Washington Treaty. Uh, also something else that probably uh, goes maybe uh, uh, a bit uh, beyond what uh, is usually known by the general public and people who don't spend time reading all the articles, but Article 2 of the Washington Treaty talks about uh, the cooperation in economic policies uh, and uh, economic collaboration between the allies. So in light of what we've seen uh, going on uh, in, in Europe, but also uh, with some of the, the things you mentioned around globalization and how we, we are seeing a paradigmatic change, uh, which has been brought about not just now 
you know, the sanctions uh, uh, that have been applied to Russia that are uh, the harshest that we've seen uh, uh, yet, uh, but also in terms of uh, some of the domestic turns in a number of uh, NATO ally states where we've seen increasing talk of protectionism, of uh, building resilience, particularly uh, in light of the pandemic, but before that as well, uh, in order to basically uh, shore up and secure supply lines, because it just so happened that some of your security uh, challengers and, and competitors might have been very much your primary trading partners. So on that note, um, what is the role that NATO can play, for instance, in being strategic uh, about uh, sourcing resources such as hydrocarbons or in terms of uh, fostering economic cooperation and collaboration? Is this maybe more in the domain of what the EU does and you know, what it's uh, more able to do? Or is there a role for NATO to play as well? Well, when you when you refer to Article Two, we need to clarify why what that was there, because of course uh, you know it, it's uh, it, it makes clear that the Allies have to remove uh, you know those obstacles that uh, can, in economic terms, hamper the ability of the Alliance to fulfill its core security tasks, and which, which means what it means that uh, fundamentally, you know, uh, being a member of NATO means. Uh, to contribute to its three budgets. We have a civilian budget, we have a military budget, and we have, uh, you know, an budget which has to do with the, with the security infrastructures that the Alliance has, because NATO has, uh, you know, the security infrastructures. And therefore, this is an ongoing effort. How to balance the domestic, you know, how, how I would say within the budget, the overall budget, of the alliance uh, member countries uh, who have to deal, of course, with different uh, domestic dimensions or economic dimensions of uh, uh, the budget, how that is uh, uh, coupled and balanced uh, with the contribution of the alliance to make the military capabilities of the alliance effective. And that's why by 2024, we, you know, the allies took the commitment of the 2%. And that is why allies contribute to all those three budgets, and they make an effort each time to balance it. So this is one fundamental thing. You know, NATO has three budgets. The allies are committed uh, to, of course, making that uh, effective. Now, with regard to, uh, you know, the, uh, the more modern, I would say, approach to look at resources, well, we, are, we are also, reached out increasingly very much to uh, the private sector, to building a relationship between NATO and the private sector. This is not only in the field which would be natural for NATO, which is the industrial cooperation. NATO always had, uh, the, even the Cold War, the NIAC, the NATO Industrial Advisory Group, to harmonize the defense cooperation among the allies, yet another evidence of the importance that Article 2 has, but we're also looking at innovation, the new emerging technologies, you know, and these are, have implications for our security. Think, for example, to artificial intelligence. You know, uh, there are systems now which uh, have to do with military capabilities, which are not only automated, but they are also uh, autonomous in terms 
of the execution of deadly force. And that poses a number of issues, also in terms of values. It poses issues in technology, because of course we need to keep up with them, but also how an alliance which based on values, as I said, the values uh, you know, of the preamble, how do we manage, for example, the, the, the fact that systems related to the use of deadly force are autonomous in terms of execution. Now, totalitarian states will not have constraints in doing that, but we as democracies do have that. So we're looking into that too. And this whole issue of the new technologies and innovation is so important to the Alliance that the Deputy Secretary General has been tasked by the Secretary General to chair an innovation board, which looks at the way in all of this is harmonized with the Alliance. And yet this is gonna be another important part of uh, the strategic concept. And I'm sure that uh, you know, everybody will see the value of this once this is unveiled. You also spoke in another dimension, I'll stop here, I don't wanna to take too much. The security implications of climate change, that is also very important because, uh, you know, climate change affects us all in different ways. And of course, affect also an organization such as ours to contribute to reducing emissions, but also to look at how climate change affects our ability, again, to manage a successful crisis should they occur at some point in time. And uh, it, it seems you almost uh, saw uh, what, what my next question would have been. So uh, in terms of uh, climate change, you've just addressed that. So uh, given uh, the, the time that we have left and, and uh, there's not a lot of it, I'm just going to address a couple of questions that have been pre-submitted, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, uh, then obviously try to keep within the time we have. Um, what may make NATO uh, opt for a no-fly zone in Ukraine has been one of the questions. We know that this has been uh, a subject of a lot of contention and debate within the alliance uh, with some of the member states that are closer uh, geographically to the crisis, uh, um, calling for, for, for similar sort of measures. Um, are we going to see any sort of movements or, or uh, any, any kind of major news on that front uh, tomorrow at the summit? Well, first of all, I cannot anticipate again because you know um, what the leaders will discuss tomorrow, it will be up to them and we will know, you know after their meeting. But let me also say, clarify this issue. We, we enforced a no-flight zone uh, in, the, in the Balkans, as you know, uh, you know, and enforcing, first of all, no-flight zone required uh, you know, on the Balkans, for example, a UN Security Council resolution. Uh, I don't see that, uh, quite frankly, uh, coming. But also, we, the Secretary General has made it clear, and the, ally, uh, the allies have made it clear very much that we don't want to become party to this uh, conflict, because this would uh, involve a dangerous escalation that would, uh, you know, really threaten uh, international peace in Europe uh, more and even having global consequences. And no-flight zones would mean, as we have seen in its enforcement in the Balkans, but also in Iraq, to shut down planes which violate that no-flight zone. And this would put the NATO automatically in, in a conflict uh, with Russia, something that the Allies uh, have decided that should not happen. And personally, uh, you know, the, the decision uh, is, in my view, very clear of the allies. This has been stated and restated by the Secretary General, you know, during the ministerial meeting. And really, I don't see how NATO 
could, uh, you know, not be involved in this conflict should it enforce uh, a no-flight zone. And one final question. I was trying to pick something that was um, at least more of a, a way to end on a positive note, but it, there was actually, the time is such that there, there are no, uh, not a lot of questions that uh, uh, are posed in, in that light, uh, but there is one that is extremely worrying and needs to be addressed. Um, the sort of talk of breaking of nuclear taboo um, and uh, just the, the sort of uh, prospects of any sort of exchange that would have uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, included in it. Um, are there talks, are there uh, ways uh, to, to try to mitigate this uh, that are going on at the moment and uh, where might the future of non-proliferation and arms control go from here uh, given February 24? Well, look, in, in, in terms of uh, deterrence, uh, NATO relies on an adequate mix of conventional nuclear forces. So our role fundamentally is one in terms of deterrence. You know, I don't want to speculate on possible use of not use of nuclear weapons. Uh, nuclear weapons should not be used. You know, they cannot be disinvented, but of course uh, we need to prevent their use at all costs. And of course the international community should such an occurrence uh, happen. We'll have to deal with it, but I really hope that this will not be the case ever. I think that this is all we have time for. Uh, Mr. DeSantis, the hour has flew by and I'm sure that we would have had another, at least half an hour worth of material uh, to discuss, if not another hour. Uh, we do thank you for taking the time to be with us, especially uh, given how busy things are at the HQ uh, at this uh, point in time, and especially in the lead up to the summit uh, tomorrow. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to all of the audience uh, for all of your questions, for being uh, with us today uh, from Australia, Europe, or uh, wherever uh, in between you might have found yourselves uh, today. Uh, please do stay tuned for other uh, webinars and events that U.S. Studies Center will be putting uh, forward over the coming weeks and months. Uh, if you haven't yet, subscribe to our newsletters, uh, check out our YouTube and, and other uh, pages. You will be able to see uh, this webinar uh, very shortly on it as well. Uh, and until next time, uh, Again, uh, thank you very much and uh, everyone stay safe and well.